Hey there, welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can live lives with a little bit more courage so we can love the hell out of this world. And not just in the big ways that seem unachievable, unmanageable for the ordinary people like me and you, but in the ways that are small, that spiral out, that make a difference in ways we can't even imagine. My name is Reverend Sean, and I'm one of your hosts, and I'm so glad that you're joining us as we are in the second podcast of our series, Simple Gifts. Now, the the running joke we have is that the simple gifts we've chosen um, are not exactly simple. We started with memory, not exactly the most simple or straightforward thing. Next, we're going to our curses. That's that's right. We are going to talk about the simple gift of our curses. And then next week, it is rebellion, right? Obviously, the simple gifts of rebellion. Sometimes the creative process, it takes you to places that you didn't even imagine. Now I want to bring in Reverend Gretchen to kind of tee off today's podcast, because in the message that I, that I share, I center a piece of scripture from the Hebrew Bible, from the prophet Isaiah. Now, it is always complicated for Unitarian Universalists to, to consider how we engage with not only other traditions, the faith practices of people within our congregations, our history as a, as a Christian faith, but also the complexities of multi-religious belonging with a good understanding of the religious trauma that so many people bring into Unitarian Universalism as they try to escape, especially Christianity. So I thought Gretchen and I could have a little bit of a conversation about just that sort of complexity and and why we think it's important to wrestle with that complexity, even if it isn't the most comfortable. In fact, there is a gift of the curse of this complexity for us all. I thought we should talk a little bit about the holidays and Unitarian Universalist worship around the holidays. Which holidays? I mean, that's part of the question, right? (laughs) Right? So December holidays in particular, Mm -hmm. and the annual uh, wrestling that all UU ministers do around this time, which is exactly which of the December holidays to engage. What does an ethical engagement of those holidays look like? How to balance the pluralism that exists in our congregation? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, this is the, the kind of dance that we do inherently in our congregations every December. I mean, we were just in a worship meeting together in which we're looking forward to a Sunday, which you're preaching about Hanukkah. I am. This, the Jewish Festival of Lights this time of year. And uh, at the same time, we have a children's choir who's singing. They, they are singing a dreidel, a, a song yes. connected to Hanukkah, but they're also singing some Christmas songs. Yeah. And... <laughs> And then we have like the question of, we have a Santa that would like to show up and we're wondering, is that uh, a good thing to put those two things together on the first night of Hanukkah or is that inappropriate? When I started here at Foothills, I was really committed to the orientation that in, at Christmas, we should talk about Christmas. And by that, I mean Jesus. Um, Now, that was uh, not always a uh, popular opinion, but it has been something you and I both have come back to year after year. Mm. And so it it, it leads to the problem of the congregants who show up only twice a year on Christmas and Easter uh, are convinced that we really only talk about Jesus because uh, those are the days they're showing up. Yeah. And it turns out that actually those are the days we specifically talk about Jesus 
And Jesus does make an appearance here and there um, as one of, you know, one of many sources of wisdom and truth and comfort. It's just that the main times we do talk about Jesus for sure is going to be Christmas and Easter because those are Christian holidays. And it makes sense to then talk about Jesus on those days. Maybe. I want to step back and just talk about because this Sunday you did something which, as you said, you say in the sermon is not. It's not common. You turned to the Christian liturgy and you preached using the scripture that Christian churches would be using on this Sunday of Advent. Advent. Yeah. So why did you do that? (laughs) That's a great question. It was the sermon that came out. No, I I think it has to do with that commitment again to to honor... (sighs) To honor the Christian formation that shaped who Unitarian Universalism is and was, which is Christian. We have a, a history and a theology that grew out from a very particular place. And, you know, the universalist message that I, that I come to in the sermon was not, was not arrived at from a secular humanistic theology. It came directly from a, a Christian theology of, of the universal love and benevolence of God. And that from that place, it, it grew and, and shifted to, to a conception of universalism as a force for creating heaven on earth, and, and then to uh, this conception that that there is no part of human experience, that there is no part of ourselves that that love, which is the corollary to God that I use throughout the sermon. I just interchanged those two words. Um, that there's no place in our lives that, that God cannot enter into. And it felt like at this time of the year when Christians are exploring what does it mean to make space and to wait for the indwelling of love, the indwelling of Jesus, the God through in Jesus, that we might take that same, that we might take up that same practice that is so connected to our universalist past, but also the universalist theology that, that many of us, I think most of us are trying to live into. So when you read the scripture, the in this case, the Hebrew Bible, what, how do you understand it? Like, what authority does it hold? I heard in all of that, like, a sense of tradition and the, an inheritance. Mm-hmm. But do you think it has any, like, how do you read it in that? Other than just, oh, well, people that we received this tradition from read it with some authority. Do you read it with some authority? And if so, what authority do you give it? You know, the, the Bible has always been the major stumbling block for me in terms of my relationship with Christianity. Mm. Because I I fell in love with Christianity when I started going to a Catholic university because I loved the questions that they were asking. I loved the tools that theology provided. I loved the stories that they were wrestling with. I loved the, the questions, the liturgical questions of how do we represent this? I loved the ministry questions of how are we called to be with one another, even the justice commitments. I, like, I fell in love with that aspect of Christianity, something I was never exposed to. But the Bible was always the place that I struggled with. 
And as I learned more and more about the construction of the Bible and the, the political, the social, um, even the linguistic realities of what that text is, it, it, it was the, the most defining thing for me to say why I am not Christian is the Bible. Mm. And yet, I say all of that to say that, firstly, the Bible, like the word biblios, is library. And, you know, it's, it's hard to find a, a, a set of stories that have shaped the Western world more than these stories. And so I approach them with, like, that historic understanding of how they've impacted us. I approach them knowing that each of the stories was lifted up by a specific community at a specific point of time as a liberating story to pass along and to keep telling. And I also approach it with an experience of scripture, which is to say that I trust that something can be revealed through it. And what I like about struggling with scripture is I don't get to pick what the story is because you use, (coughs) we have this expansive sense of scripture and we can take as scripture so many both sacred and, and secular texts. And yet, because we can pick, we can so often pick things that we don't have to wrestle with. Mm. And so I approach this scripture as something that is hard to wrestle with. It's generative for us as Unitarian Universalists, even atheists, to wrestle with it because it's in that wrestling that often something new is revealed. You're reminding me of something that one of my friends, who also was kind of Catholic, <laughs> the, the way she ta- told me she wrestles with the, the Bible, which is from a deep sense of humility. And by that she meant, I try to not think I try not to be, can we swear on the podcast? She says, I try not to be the asshole that thinks that I've come up with the answer that 2,000 years of people couldn't come up with. Right. And I, I really appreciate the humility of that stance. And so that's just how she entered into her relationship with scripture is just to say, there's people here over 2,000 years that have been wrestling with this text and somehow... You know, they didn't think to put something else in here. And so maybe this is just enough. That's one, to me, that's a, I hear that in some of what you're saying, that sort of humility of recognizing there's something here that isn't me, but I could learn from and that it could be good for me to learn from. The fact that it's been read by in community over centuries is really important because I try to imagine each time that we read it in community that for as many different reactions we have had, we have, that there have been those, that diversity of reactions over those same centuries. And so then I feel aligned with the disagreements and the contradictions and the shock and also the comfort and all this, the very, to me, it's a very human text. Mm -hmm. And it is it it puts me in alignment with communities that have wrestled with this over millennia. 
and and with these stories and these texts over millennia. And I really appreciate that in that I really love a lot of, there's a lot of other places I would turn to and say, I, I consider that a holy texts, but there's not very many that I can say that about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think there's something that's particularly important about the fact that we are, as Unitarian Universalists, it's interesting that you think the Bible is the main problem when we were, biblical literalists that's how our um a lot of our uh i don't think we were literalists i think we turn to the scripture as yes. proof yes for our theological position we were we were rather biblically oriented we were yes. and so our traditions didn't come out of as you say a secular position or even a non-biblical position no the source of authority for our theological positions of unitarianism and universalism were biblical mm-hmm. And what got us into trouble was our arguments around reading the Bible and saying we don't see the Trinity there or we have a case for universalism there. Yeah. So you didn't, you had trouble with the scripture, but then ended up in a tradition that really. It was formed by scripture itself. Yes. And we could go into so much of the, the history about how Unitarians and Universalists were bible nerds and it it is fascinating i i remember in my one of my classes in seminary which was on specifically buddhist approaches to scripture Mm. my professor spoke about how in so buddhists have an open canon which is to say that they are able to add texts Mm. in you know the, the bible is a closed set of texts that you know they don't do a lot of edits and revisions to it. They translate it maybe, but they don't, you know, do more than that. You know, for centuries, Buddhists didn't have that sense. In fact, they thought that something happened um, every time the text was translated, something new was revealed. Every time the texts were reorganized and put into a different orders, truth was revealed. Every time new texts were added to the canon, truth was revealed. And not only that, that when that the Buddha, you know, impregnated the Dharma into the world so much so that they knew that we as seminary students were going to be reading the Heart Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, um, and put stuff in there specifically for us. Um, and so part of my approach to scripture has also been about honoring the the fact that these religious traditions put stock in in a in a power and in a truth that that would not think it um, wrong for us to approach this text and, and to gain something from it, mm-hmm. even even partially, mm-hmm. even bringing in our preconceptions and bringing in our uh, delineations and you know historical realities and baggage. Um, that there would still be something there um, because that that is how they conceive of the word of God. And so part of it in approaching this text and and giving it the place it did in the in the sermon was about honoring that truth that is contained in a tradition that is not mine. All right, so let's turn to the sermon now and hear some of that biblical learning that you did this week. Yeah, so first you're going to hear Tim Wyman, member of Foothills, read the the text from Isaiah that I draw from, which is a Hebrew prophet 
and then you'll hear the sermon that exegetes, which is the fancy seminary word for wrestles, makes sense of, tries to understand the text and what it means for us. This is a reading from the prophet Isaiah. The wilderness and desert will sing joyously. The badlands will rejoice and flower. Like the crocus in spring, bursting into abundance, a symphony of song and color. Mountain glories of Lebanon will be a gift. Awesome caramel and stunning Sharon, gifts. God's resplendent glory, fully on display. God awesome, God majestic. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those with a fearful heart, courage, take heart. God is here, right here, on her way to put things right and redress all wrongs. She's on her way. She will save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be opened, and then the paralyzed shall leap like a deer, and the voiceless will break into song, for water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Even lowly jackals will have water to drink, and barren grasslands will flourish richly. More on that passage in a minute. Real talk. Who told the little drummer boy to go see Jesus? Because if it was the wise people, as the story goes, I have some questions about their credentials as wise people. I mean, who would think that after an arduous trek and the exhaustion of labor, what Mary really needed was percussion? There she and her family are, away from the community that would have cared for her aunts, midwives, friends, if she went into labor back home. Labor was and still is in many places a dangerous act. Who exactly thought when what Mary probably wanted more than anything else in the world was peace and quiet was to literally send the world's loudest instrument? Don't get me wrong. I love drums. I'm all about that bass. A recent study even concluded that it's the bass, the percussive elements in music, that actually motivates us to dance harder. I love drums. But as the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us, for everything there is a season. And I know he's young, but come on. Even he should know what an appropriate gift, what an inappropriate gift, rup pup pumming on his little drum would be. And sure, he asks permission, but that's just putting the burden on Mary to disappoint him. He literally says to her, I have nothing except this drum. <laughs> what was Catherine Kennicott Davis, who wrote this carol, thinking? Incidentally, maybe related, I could find no record that Catherine Kennicott Davis ever gave birth. <laughs> so there's that. Now in Christian theology, Christmas is the celebration of the presence of God in the very flesh of humanity. That God isn't an absent, impersonal force or distant power, but rather Emmanuel, God with us, literally with us, literally of us. Not God with us, asterisks, read the terms and conditions. Not God with us, but only the pleasant parts. Not as prosperity gospels preach God with us, but only really the wealthy. 
not as fundamentalists of all stripes preach God with us, but only the people that act like us, look like us, think like us. Not God with us, but God with us, God fully with us, all of us, all parts of us, here with us in pain, suffering, heartache, here with us in every part of the human condition, all parts. The story of Christmas is the story of God joining humanity in the fullness of humanity, becoming present to all of it, not just the pleasant parts. So maybe after all, the little drummer boy story makes a lot of sense because I can't think of a more human experience than struggling to deal with another human trying to do good but failing. I don't know what's more human than being irritated. I don't know what's more human than the challenge of being in relationship with one another. In fact, I think that's the primary challenge of being human. God with us, with us in life's gifts and with us in life's inevitable curses. The gift of presence is not received by being present to only life's gifts. What good would it be for God to come to earth and only experience the ple pleasures and delights and the joys of being alive? We'd find that God out of touch, aloof, unrelatable. They would be the type of person who, when you would come to them with a deep heartache about a rupture in relationship, would respond, have you tried buying a really expensive gift for yourself? The true gift of presence, be it divine or utterly human, although those two things are not opposites, the true gift of presence comes only through being present to all of life. Now, Tim read at the beginning this reading from Hebrew scripture. Now, it's not common for us here at Foothills to include scripture on our Sunday mornings. And it's not because we don't have Jewish or Christian members of this congregation, we do. But as Unitarian Universalism emerged out of Christianity, the role of scripture, the role of the Bible shifted as the canon of sacred texts expanded. But as we are entering into the time at Advent in the Christian world, it seemed fitting to explore the very texts that Christian churches that use the lectionary will be hearing this very Sunday. In the passage from the prophet Isaiah, God's promise to their people is being fulfilled. The wilderness and the desert, places of danger and famine, are suddenly resplendent with life. One translation goes, singing joyously, the badlands will celebrate and flower like the crocus in spring, bursting into blossom, a symphony of song and color. Parts of the body that were fatigued or infirm Senses that were shuddered are strengthened, are unstopped. Through God, the wilderness is literally being terraformed, transformed down to its fundamental ecosystem DNA, where there was once hot sand and oasis, where the ground thirsted splashing fountains. Isaiah is a piece of prophetic poetry, and this chapter makes good on its poetic beauty, which is a startling contrast from the previous chapter, chapter 34. 
Because in chapter 34 of Isaiah, God is enraged. Enraged at all of the nations for their misdeeds. A divine vengeance that is taken out on the very lands that God transforms in the next chapter. In chapter 34, the streams of water that did run in the land turn to tar. Dust turns to sulfur. The wilderness will become impassable, possessed by wild animals such as jackals, porcupines, wolves, and ostriches. And ostriches are legitimately terrifying. Now, the exact timeline of this text authorship is murky. At the time of writing, the Jewish nation was either under threat of the impending invasion by the far superior Babylonian army, a war they knew they would not win, or they had already been occupied by the Babylonians, their leaders exiled to Babylon and their sacred temple in Jerusalem destroyed. You can feel the tension of that reality in both of these chapters. The fear of a nation losing its way, afraid that God would turn its back on them. And the faith and trust in God that they would never truly be abandoned. Both chapters at once containing the complexity of their predicament. The same place where in one chapter, the streams turned to tar. In the next, we see springs of water bursting forth in the desert. In the same place, infested with jackals, possessed by porcupines and thick with thorns. In one chapter, in the next, we'll see the jackals having enough water to drink once again, no longer dangerous and feral. Startling contrast. One insight to draw from this contrast these chapters in Isaiah, is that the very places seen as condemned are the places that God will show up. The places where you cannot imagine or comprehend might ever be hospitable again will become oases. That the very paths you deem impassable will become a holy highway towards freedom. That which was once condemned will see God's resplendent glory fully on display in a manner beyond your capacity to imagine or even comprehend. I wonder what places you have in your life that feel condemned, that feel inhospitable, what paths you have deemed impassable. For the prophet Isaiah has a message for all of us don't be so sure. Around this time of year, we often hear to make the holidays not about presents, gifts, but about presence, being there for one another, showing up, be it for our loved ones or for our community. And it's easy to interpret this message to be instructing us to acknowledge, allow, and appreciate the parts of our lives or even ourselves that bring us joy or satisfaction or connectedness. And that is good, and we should all do that. But in this time of Advent, this time in the Christian tradition of waiting and preparing for the birth of Jesus, there is a deeper practice of presence that we are called into. For the spiritual discipline of Advent, of waiting in Advent, is not passive, a resignation, 
or simply running out the clock until Christmas Day. The spiritual practice of waiting in Advent is an active discipline of making space for God, of making space for love, of time of stretching our expectations of where love might show up. In the desert, in the tender squirming body of a baby, born and not to rulers, but to commoners, in the form of an annoying child with a drum. The deeper practice of presence we are called into, and one that I admit I am currently struggling with, is how to not foreclose on love. Because in a closed mind, there's never any room for a point of another point of view. Because in a closed heart, there is never the courage to risk loving for fear of the pain that might well ensue. And I confess that I foreclose on God, foreclose on love every time I am so sure of myself, so hubristic and sure of what is possible and what is not. So clear in the truth of reality, according to me. So strident to know that love would never show up in this certain part of my life, in this certain place in the world. Each of these sureties, strident expectations, encase us, entrench us within the confines of the presence and the limitations of our individual vision, held fast in the wreck of now. Advent is the jaws of life, prying, wrenching, forcing open a window for us to climb out of the wreck of accumulated fears and unwise aphorisms of the way things go. Rescuing us from ourselves when we have lost sight of that fundamental tenet of universalism, that there is no part of the human experience that love cannot enter into and transform, that there is no place, no person, no situation that is impervious to love. And I suck at this. Maybe you do too, I hope not. Because I cling to the wreck of surety, resisting those jaws of life because I like my mind where it is, thank you, somewhat closed, firmly rooted even if on imaginary ground. But as I've been practicing, practicing making space for love, practicing letting go of what I think is possible, here is what I've been learning. First, when there are places in my life that I avoid being present to, I am always confident that love is not at work there. Said another way, you can't witness love at work if you ain't looking. Second, the more space I make for all the parts of myself, all the contradictory thoughts, feelings, and experiences, the more I am present to the gifts and the curses, my fears and my hopes, the more confident I am that none of those individual single conceptions contain the full truth of the matter. Just like those two chapters in Isaiah, 
the fear of God's abandonment, the faith in God's steadfast love, neither one of them the full truth together, said another way, paradoxically, being present to all the parts of life doesn't dilute, but rather concentrates truth. And what liberating news for us that in any given moment, be it a moment of frustration, pain, or confusion, or deep happiness, the truth of the situation cannot be reduced to one thing, which leads us to the third lesson. Within every curse, every annoyance, every challenging situation, once we become present to it, there is something that we can appreciate about it, even down to the basic fact that we are alive to face it, or that we are being forced to grow. This doesn't mean that what is vexing us is actually a blessing, or as toxic positivity tells us to smile our way through, or that it is God's will. No, no, no. But it does mean that love might use it if we let it. The gift of presence cannot be received if we are present to only life's gifts. In fact, the gift of presence, of being able to witness love at work in the places you thought condemned, of being liberated from the false simplicities of narrow and single truths or feelings, of being invited to see how even our curses can become sites of gratitude, of letting go of our chokehold we have on the possible, allowing the seemingly impossible to occur against all of our preconceptions, these gifts can only come into being when we stretch ourselves to be present to more and more parts of life. And once that transformation begins, like labor, any person who has given birth will tell you, there's only one way through. I remember the panel of doulas we had leading worship a few years ago say something along the lines of, once birth starts, you can't stop it. Whatever happens will happen. And your job is to accept all the parts, the unexpected, the painful, the joyous, the humorous. And the more that you can do that, the more that you can be present to it all without resisting or fighting, the more that you can come to trust a deeper primal wisdom contained within. Maybe that's why, as the carol goes, Mary, fresh from this experience of complex presence and embracing, why she was able to push past the annoyance of a tyke with a drum and see wrapped up in that headache-inducing rup-pup-humming that there was also the presence of love. Because when we do, we might like Mary, who sang in the Minificat, we might find faith in the seemingly impossible. We might find faith that somehow, some way, the lowly peoples of the world will be lifted up. That some way, somehow, beyond even our conceptions, those in power will be brought down. That some way, somehow, even beyond our imaginings, there will be enough to feed all those who are hungry and the rich will be sent away. And we can practice living into this new world every time we receive the imperfect offerings of this world and look 
for where love is there too. Well, that about wraps up this episode of the Deeper Podcast. I'm so appreciative for the hundreds of you who are listening every week. A couple weeks ago, we put out an episode that was a little bit different, that was a Vesper-style contemplative, and I heard from a few of you that you really appreciated it, so thanks for that feedback, and I'm looking forward to producing more of those kind of contemplative centering episodes uh, in in the future. Now, before I go, I do have one uh, little confession, which is that I sort of lied in the sermon. I sort of lied when I said that it's only when we're present to all of life that love can can do its work. That That's not true. I was kind of using a little rhetorical device in, in the sermon. In fact, love has a way of working in all of the places, in all of the people, even when we're not looking, even actually when we're moving against it. It's one of the most powerful parts of that force of love. The difference, though, and and what I think is at the heart of the message that I shared is that when we are present to all of the parts of our lives, we are able to see where love might be active and we're able to partner with love. And of course, it is the partnership with love that is the truly the most uh, transformative force in this universe. Because we can extend its reach, which I think is the very definition of courageous love. So my hope for you this week is that you enter into your life a a little bit more present to the complexities and all of the different parts so that you're able to witness and show up for, uh, for those places that need that extra partnership, especially at this time of year, which is hard and complex for, for many of us. Well, thanks for listening. Until uh, next time when we talk about rebellion. Take care. <laughs>